Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Form and Focus, where each week we bring you a couple selections from interviews that we don't want you to miss. What have you got this week, Mina? Well, you know why I wanted to talk about my conversation with the Keys, Keegan-Michael Key and El Key. Because they're really funny. Well, they're both really <laughs> funny, but you know what I did? I actually made Keegan laugh. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I made him laugh with a joke that he himself made on his own in his own book and on his own <laughs> podcast. So I don't know if that counts. That is a Guaranteed win, though. Me. You know, you got to take them where you can get them. So this week, you had a great interview with graphic novelist, screenwriter Dan Klaus. Why was this a highlight for you? Klaus is just really smart, and he created a masterpiece, as Juno Diaz called it in the New York Times. And so it, it really is unlike any comic book or graphic novel I've ever read. <laughs> and you realize like, oh, right, that's because this guy redefines the genre like every time he does a book. You know, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. Can't wait to hear that. But first up, my interview with the Keys. In their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, Keegan-Michael Key and L. Key take us on a hilarious and also personal journey to help us understand how we got to the sketch comedy we know and love today. From the uh, fart jokes of the Sumerians, <laughs> Abbott and Costello's Who's On First, to SNL and the incisive sketches of Key and Peel, the keys remind us of the absurdity, the artistry, and the enduring power of sketch comedy. They also break down how it's done. So, listeners, what comedy sketches do you still talk about or share months, years, even decades after seeing them? L. Key, Keegan-Michael Key, welcome to Forum. Hi, Mina. Hi, thank you for having us. So great to have you both on. I mentioned this book is a sketch comedy history, a how-to, also kind of a memoir of Keegan's life. Am I right, Elle, that you you kind of pushed for that, for him to add some personal touches to it? Uh, Yeah, I thought thought that because Keegan's life has so many interesting touchstones that have to do with some, with sketch or comedy in some capacity – I thought it'd be really fun if Keegan was kind of the narrator or the tour guide through sketch. So we basically um, came up with this plan to use Keegan's life as as kind of the string you hang the comedic lights on, if if that makes sense. (laughs) Oh, totally. I love actually one of the personal moments is that you, Keegan, can pinpoint the moment when your sketch comedy path began. It's not like, oh, I kind of (laughs) remember. It's like, no, there was a very specific moment when it all started for you. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Yeah, it was um, 
it was a lot about my, hearing my father laugh at a Saturday Night Live sketch when I was, oh gosh, I guess I might have been 13, 14 years old. And my father was a kind of a stoic guy. He was a big, tall, stoic man. And um, to hear him laugh, he had actually a very kind of high-pitched chuckle for a laugh when he did laugh. But it was few and far between to hear those laughs. And so I remember watching this sketch with my dad and him just cracking up. And, and I thought to myself, what is that power that someone has? And that particular someone in, that, in, in this case was Eddie Murphy. Yeah, uh, during this, yeah, I mean, which yeah, I think we can all uh, agree is a person who's made many a many a person laugh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, and that was the moment. That was the moment. Hearing my dad laugh really for the first time that outrageously, and I thought to myself, I want to have something to do with this. What whatever this thing is that's happening right now. So so describe the sketch and then maybe you both can break it down a little for us in terms of what are the elements of it that that made it so good mhm well the sketch so so what the sketch was was um an audi- it was an audition sketch and what was happening is that there were people holding an audition for Stevie Wonder impersonators and Stevie Wonder happened to be the musical guest on the show that evening so Stevie Wonder was in the sketch and he in was character. in character. Stevie, Stevie Wonder was in the sketch in character. As, a, as an actor auditioning. Yes, to be a Stevie Wonder impersonator. Stevie <laughs> Wonder was, was, in, was acting as an actor to be a Stevie Wonder impersonator. And it was really very funny. Because he was bad. He was a really, <laughs> really bad Stevie Wonder impersonator. He, he could not do an impression of Stevie Wonder. And he had this really high-pitched kind of Jerry Lewis talking voice. And he was like, how is that? Like, it had nothing to do with anything Stevie Wonder. Yeah, he was playing, and he was, wasn't he playing, he's playing like a little keyboard and he's playing it horribly and he's singing very superstitious and he's like, very superstitious, (laughs) writing on the wall. And it was, it was, and, and it was fantastic. It was horrible. And then Eddie Murphy appears and says, hey man, hey man, he's the producer producer who's, who's, who's auditioning auditioning the Stevie Wonder impersonators. And he goes <laughs> to Stevie Wonder, he goes, man, that, man, that, that, that sucked, man, that was terrible. <laughs> and, and, and he goes, he goes yes, that's not anything, it doesn't sound anything like Stevie Wonder. Let me show you what, what Stevie Wonder sounds like. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out some sunglasses and he puts them on. And right at that moment, you realize, oh my gosh, Stevie Wonder is, or, or, I mean, Eddie Murphy is about to do a Stevie Wonder impersonation in front of Stevie Wonder. And it's just, it's absolutely sublime. I, I guess one of the things that I thought about when I was reading that description and also thinking about what you've said, Keegan, about a good sketch having a, hey, you can't do that moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, does that qualify as like when he's taking out the glasses and like being Stevie Wonder in front of Stevie Wonder as like a moment like that? So, so Gigan likes this phrase, this, you know, this, hey, you can't do that when something in comedy is so ridiculous and so silly for people who are listening. And, but he, he also said the other day, it's like, it can be a, hey, you can't do that. Something like that you get up, you're like, these, these guys are crazy, but how, how, how can you, how brave are they that they're going to 
trying to get away with this. That they're going to go there. And then, yeah, so then he said the other day, he goes, he goes, I can't believe they went there. It could have been the name of the chapter. <laughs> like the name of the subheading could have been, I can't believe they went there. And so that in that moment, I, I remember that sketch as well. I, you go, I can't believe that Eddie Murphy is going there. But oh no, oh no, he's going. And then in Eddie Murphy shows Stevie Wonder how to move his head, how to move his neck back and forth, how to sway... <laughs> <laughs> how to do a Stevie Wonder impression. It's oh. pretty fantastic. Yeah. And so does it need an element like that to be good, Elle? Like you write, you direct, you produce these kinds of sketches. Is that kind of essential? Um, well, as so in the book, we talk about the process and we talk about what goes into a sketch as well. And so there are just certainly different kinds of sketches. There's all different ways you could do sketches, but a beginning, middle, and an end, and um, some heightening is what we call it. So heightening is like where you start out at, at one place where it's kind of life as you know it. This is what's happening. This is where this couple is. Hey, this is an audition. This is where we are. This is the world that we're in. And then you add to it and you say, oh, you know what? It's not just an audition. It's an audition for Stevie Wonder impersonators. And so we all go, oh, Okay. That seems to fit in the world of reality. You could have an audition for Stevie. But then when Stevie Wonder walks in, you call that heightening. You go, mm. okay, now we just went from life as you know it to this is now getting absurd. This is this is really getting silly. So that heightens to that. And then when Eddie Murphy pulls out the sunglasses, that's, that's even a greater heighten. So a lot of times if Keegan and I are writing something together, we try to figure out where it heightens. And, and you could do something... You can reverse engineer it in a way. Say, you know what? I really want this scene to end where Eddie Murphy's doing an impression of Stevie Wonder in front of Stevie Wonder. How do we do Eddie Murphy doing his Stevie Wonder impression? And then maybe they work backwards. I don't know who wrote the sketch, but it's totally possible they went, boy, wouldn't it be great to see this? And then they said, okay, so let's create an environment to get to that goal. So one of the things that I think is so awesome is that you were talking about this also in the context historically of like court jesters and how court jesters really the stakes were very high if they messed up on this. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, pretty high. What, what, what did we say in the book? I think we say something about, um, yeah, instead of getting a severance package, if you get fired, you get a severed head. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Michael tweets, my favorite sketches are Eddie Murphy's, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood Sketches, Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd's Two Wild and Crazy Guys, and Nichols and May's Telephone Operator. I'm, I'm glad that, I, I love that they mentioned Nichols and May, yeah. and I don't think Nichols and May gets mm -hmm. enough attention. I think there's so many, so many incredible sketches, and this is Elaine May and, and Mike Nichols, who were a, a couple and a comedy team. Um, which someone earlier today was talking about that there aren't that many comedy teams that are couples that 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 was a thing for a while. That but was that, a thing for a while, yeah. That they so they had their humor. A lot of their humor is is listening to their voices without seeing them perform. So was it albums? There were Nichols and May albums. Mm -hmm. So you could just sit down and listen to an album of the two of them going back and forth, and and it's the same thing. They start in a simple place like. In a, in a room in a hospital, which is one of the sketches we talk about. And um, 
it's just a, a woman who's in a hospital room or who's had some kind of surgery or something has happened, and the doctor comes in and he's like, uh, can you hear me? Um, uh, Mrs. Lotke, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mrs. Lotke. Uh huh. Yes, I, um, it's the doctor here. I'm here. I'm here to examine you. Um, yeah. And she's like, she says something like her IV came out and he starts asking her questions and how she's doing. And then he asks if she's seen one of the nurses and she's like, um, nurse, nurse Rodetsky. And she's like, uh, I don't know. I, I maybe I told her about my IV and he keeps asking questions about the nurse. And what he's really trying to find out is it seems that they had a date the night before and he wants to know if this poor woman in bed who's moaning and in pain and trying to get her IV and if she has any insight into whether the nurse was happy about the date the night before. (laughs) And it's so ludicrous and so silly. And the moment that you realize that the only reason why the doctor came in there is to find out if she knows about what, if the nurse said anything about the date. Did she, did she say anything? Did she, did she? Oh, she was tired? Was she tired? Was she tired? Did she say anything? (laughs) And it's so, but it's so fun when you, when you, um, when you problem solve and and you figure it out, it's like solving the puzzle. And, and that's so much fun. The same way in, in Keegan's sketch and the substitute teacher on Keegan Peel, when you realize, oh, wait a second. Oh, he's going to call another name and it's going to be wrong too. I want to try to guess what the game is. I want to try to guess what name he's saying. So when he says D nice, you go, Oh, I get it. I get it. And you want to get it before the, the, the kid in the room speaks up. So that, that game Nichols and May does a great job of giving you, giving the audience a chance to enjoy figuring out what the game is. That's a great description. So after knowing, studying, really digging into, you know, and then of course, learning and perfecting through your, through your work, um, what makes a really good sketch. Has it like affected what you find funny? You say at one point, Keegan, I think in the book that it's hard to make you laugh and that Elle was actually one of the few people who could. Like, do Mm -hmm. you, is it harder to find things funny when you, when you know how it should be done and all those elements, tactics, strategies, tools of a sketch? Yeah, sometimes it is. I think what happens, Mina, is that you, you start to, um, admire things and appreciate things as opposed to outright laughing at things. And I know that stand-up comedians do the same thing where uh, if you tell, tell a joke or you say something funny in a moment, a stand-up comedian will go, ah, mm, that was good. That was good. That was funny. Yeah. What you just did right there. That was funny. And they, but they don't laugh, but they don't laugh. You know, what I mean? and, and I think that um, it's the same thing with sketches that when because you almost you almost snap immediately into analysis because part of the joy, part of the pleasure is the analysis. Do you find the same thing happens for you, Al? I well, especially with Keegan, I, I kind of take it as a challenge that if, if I can get Keegan to really uh, lose lose himself and laugh at something then then I know that that works. And I'm like, oh, I'm writing that one down. We're going to save that one for later. But it, but it's fun. We are we are surrounded by a lot of people who are very, very talented and, and uh, comedic and comedians. And and it's almost like 
it's almost like they're not allowed to laugh at stuff. I think there's so many people who want to make them laugh or want to tell jokes. Just like I'm sure people want to play basketball against good basketball players. Like you, you want to make a comedian laugh. Yeah. And I, I don't recommend trying. <laughs> it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do. But if you, but if you, you got something, you got some good material, you got something, you, you break them down. It's, it's almost worth the, the risk. It's worth the risk. Especially you hear Keegan. By the way, I, I do think Keegan Keegan has the greatest laugh of, of anyone. So I'm very, very lucky that I married someone who oh. I can make laugh and then he has a he has a great laugh to boot. And that was my conversation with Keegan-Michael Key and Elke. If you want to hear more, just search your favorite podcast app for KQED Forum Sketch Comedy. And don't go away. Next, I'm talking about Monica, the new book called A Masterpiece by the New York Times by Oakland cartoonist, graphic novelist, screenwriter, Dan Klaus. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by Daniel Klaus, cartoonist, graphic novelist, a, a real legend in the field. And he's got a new book. It's called Monica. It's on Fantagraphics. Uh, first book in in seven years. Um, just describe it for, for folks. You've touched on it a little bit that you wanted to do <coughs> some you know, movement through genre in, in the book. But what's the form that it ended up taking at the end? Uh, it's a collection of nine shortish stories under 25 pages. I wanted each of them to work on their own as a sort of an independent story that you could read without the rest of the book. I'm not, I'm not sure I succeeded in that, but uh, it's basically a cradle-to-grave story about uh, a woman named Monica. And if, I've, I learned after the the book has come out and gotten a few reviews that uh, that everybody thinks it's about Monica Lewinsky, which really? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, I did an I did an interview where I very recently where uh, where I was talking about when I started the book it was it was uh, like uh, summer of 2016 when I first started thinking about it I had no idea what it was going to be I didn't have a title anything and uh, but I in the interview I said oh I imagined it would take place during the eight years of the Hillary Clinton presidency. You know, like I imagine that, like I sort of imagine uh-huh. that would be the world I'd be working in. Nothing to do that has was not what the book was going to be about, and and uh, and so then this article came out and said originally Monica was going to be about the eight years of the Hillary Clinton presidency. <laughs> <laughs> it's modern journalism, and 
And so then everybody was like, well, it must be like a fictional story about Monica Lewinsky. And it was like, no, no. I literally, I, I chose the name Monica because it's it's the most graphically beautiful, typographically beautiful word. It's got like the matching, the M and the A are these kind of pointed shapes on the end. And it's got the circular. It's It just would look great. And so yeah. I thought, oh, that, that's that's the reason. The Lewinsky thing was just a bonus. Yeah, It was just a bonus. So, so anybody <laughs> looking... For the you know the secret life story of of uh, Monica Lewinsky in here, yeah, it, it's sadly not not in this. Um, it is true. I mean, you said cradle to grave, and it is really a kind of reckoning with the childhood and how maybe that never ends. That kind of reckoning. So, w- what was your own childhood like? <laughs> so, I I try in the book. I tried to depict a very chaotic. Uh, childhood in the in sort of the throes of the uh, counterculture '60s, and um, that was very much my, my. I think one of the reasons I I did this, at least that part of the book, is that I my childhood was so confusing and chaotic. I wanted to try to sort of express the way it felt emotionally, at least, without getting into the specifics, but. Uh, uh, I was when I was born. My parents were uh, were involved in auto racing, which was very weird because my dad my dad was a PhD uh, or an engineering uh, PhD at the University of Chicago, and my uh, my mom was uh, also a student there and had been. Uh, you know, was my grandfather was a professor of medieval history, so this was not the kind of family that got into auto racing, but my. My mom and my father, who really were ready for a divorce five years before I was born, this was the kind of the thing they got into to save the marriage. To save yeah. the marriage, and uh, and my uh, my the, and they wound up actually racing in the Formula Junior circuit, which is you know sort of a low, like the cheap do-it-yourself Formula One, uh, and they. Um, and so they hired a race car driver for their car in the in the local racing scene. And my mom wound up leaving my dad for the race car driver, oh. <clears throat> which I didn't ever figure that out until like two years ago. <laughs> and then uh, and then he died in a crash in a in a race in uh, Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. And <clears throat> when I was five years old, and at that point, my mom. Uh, just like could not be a mom and sent me to live with my grandparents. Huh. And that's the that's the very like the simplified version, but it was pure insanity. Wow. And so what about your dad? Was he available for you as a parent? He was. He was a very, uh, he was a classic, you know, like post-World War II dad, like a very like, I don't show emotions kind of guy. <laughs> but he, no, he was a good, he was a good dad, but he was... Uh, he was not like up for being like a full-time caretaker. Yeah. In the book, Monica's mother is named Penny. Um, and she definitely is sort of sucked into the the counterculture, maybe not the Formula Junior counterculture. <laughs> no, it's, the, a, it's a different. A much more like kind of recognizable from the kind of Berkeley, San Francisco kind of world, right? Can yes. you t- tell us a little more about, about Penny as a character? 
I think, yeah, I think of the world. You know, there's these certain areas.、Uh, Berkeley. I grew up in Hyde Park in Chicago near the university. It's all it very、uh, sort of a similar kind of college neighborhood that is kind of at the forefront of of like progressive politics and things like that.、Um, and Monica's mother Penny is a young woman who, who, when when all that starts happening, when this kind of Hippie counterculture starts blossoming. She's she's realizes this is what she's been waiting for. Nothing's felt right, and now she's just embracing it full on. Which was very much the case with my mother, who was my mother is actually quite old for the whole hippie thing.、Uh, you know, she was in her thirties when that happened, but she、uh, gravitated toward it like it was. You know, it just had been. Uh, the thing she always knew existed and somehow didn't, and now all of a sudden she could be part of this world. And she and she never she always talked about it later on, like, oh, I wish I could go back to that time.、Huh. This really made me wonder whether there could be a similar kind of counterculture in like today. Like, could there be、no. a new culture that arises that then draws, you know, a bunch of people? There couldn't、way. be a mass counterculture, I don't think, because everybody's so subdivided. You know, that was back when there was four TV stations. You know, everybody had the same cultural references. Everybody responded to the same things. There were there were mass movements. It feels like now everybody's in their own little. Cult where they, you know, where they all have their own interests and and rules and language, language, every and and kind of don't even understand people in the other groups. So it feels like a an impossibility at this point.、Yeah. There is, I mean, Penny,、um, like many people of her time, does get sucked into a、uh, a. Cult. <laughs> I think that's fair to call them a, a cult. It's unclear at first,、How、but definitely. Dare you? <laughs> <laughs>、um, where did that sort of interest come from? Is it from observing that like broader cultural movement of people kind of turning in, inward with their their language and their lifestyle? It's probably. I, I didn't think of it in those terms when I was working on it, and then when it. When I was deep into it, it felt like, oh yes, I'm, this is just exactly how the world feels. <laughs>、um, I'd always been really interested in cults. I, I, I had, you know, I grew up not in California, but I was always fascinated by that whole world of California cults.、Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first moved to Berkeley, I think within two days, I had walked over to where.、Uh, The apartment where Patty Smith was a、uh, Patty Hearst was abducted. <laughs> you know, it was two blocks from where I lived, and I just felt like, oh my god, I'm in the epicenter of this insane, you know, American,、uh, the ber- berserk era of the '70s when when these things were blossoming. And I, I've always been kind of terrified to by the idea of cults. Like to be in a cult seems like the most terrifying thing.、Um, How come? Just it it just feels、uh, it, it's got a claustrophobia about it that really <laughs> makes me uncomfortable and the and the idea of having to sort of play a character all day makes me very uncomfortable. It's like the like、uh, I like the idea of being able to kind of、uh, shift my personality based on the situation. You know, probably. <laughs> 
Growing up with three different sets of parents, I had three sort of distinct personalities around all of them, and and the idea of having to uh, to like live as this one specific character in a cult seems very uh, constricting. Yes, yeah. I I often try to think of like like if I designed my own cult, what it would what would that be? <laughs> and it, it's I always feel like it would be so much work to be a cult leader. <laughs> you know, it's so much effort. You have to really like you know you have to make eye contact with everybody in the cult and really like sit down and make them feel important. And it's like so it's so hard to do. Is it almost not worth it? Yeah, it feels like a very long term sales job. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Let's talk uh, a little bit about Penny's um, daughter, Monica, and title, title character. Um, I actually want to talk about her towards the end of her life, and then we can sort of work backwards here. Okay. But late in her life, she's kind of living in this small, nameless, California, beautiful town, which I've decided to is Gualala, but could be. Yeah. <laughs> could be anywhere. Could be Guerneville, could be Mendocino. <laughs> yeah. And she's just there kind of vibing alone. And I really loved those scenes, this kind of quiet life that she's living. Um, what kind of drew you? I mean, that, that seems like the hardest comic to draw. It's sort of like the opposite of the action comic, right? <laughs> right. Is like doing ceramics in Gualala. <laughs> you know? Boy, we're going to sell a lot of books with this <laughs> one. Um, it's... Uh, to me, it's, it, you know, every, it, my wife and I have gone to every little town in California, you know, for a, for a weekend or so. And we, every single time we, we wind up walking over to the real estate office. Could we move here? <laughs> Could we just stay here? Seems, it seems so safe. Are you reading my and, mind right now? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, uh, and there's, and I feel like those towns don't exist anywhere else. It's just such a very California thing. And they you always feel like if you did move there, you'd be you'd you'd be hated by the people who live there. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't want you city folks here. Um, but uh, but I thought you know it's it's always sort of a fantasy of like just living in a small town like that, doing doing some kind of art that you don't necessarily show to anybody outside of that town or the you know the local art fairs and and just uh, keep living a very simple life. Uh, kind of by yourself like a very solitary life and and uh and so i wanted to sort of give that to her for a while at the end <laughs> you have talked about um in the past that the different chapters of the book are also these kind of variations <laughs> on a on aloneness um but you yourself you know you live in oakland you have a family like you are not a person who's alone per se well, th thanks for ruining my whole thing. Uh, no, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's of course true. But uh, I feel like aloneness is something you you acquire at a young age. And I think we all have aloneness. You know, I was thinking whenever, you know, I have friends who are constantly around, have parties every night, always have people around. And that always seems like a really profound kind of aloneness where it's almost like mm. you're you're addicted to having... You know, you need to have people around, or you'll like fall Follow, apart, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. disintegrate. And uh, and I'm actually, I do. I mean, I'm with my wife all day, every day. But um, but we, uh, 
but I, I do. I feel very comfortable just being alone in a room, which you know, as a cartoonist, you better useful <laughs> because yeah, because otherwise uh, you're going to be very miserable. You know, it's really about uh, sitting there all day and feeling good about that. You know, sitting at a in a looking at a blank piece of paper and and uh, thinking your own horrible thoughts. <laughs> I mean, because these panels, right? I mean, uh, these pages, they take like a week, two weeks to draw. I mean, you know, uh, the amount of work would be like, a, you know, an, a 70-hour week, you know, something like that. They, they take forever. Not This is not true of all comics. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm the kind of person who, uh, who it's like, if there's a way to do it harder, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out that way. It's your fine art background. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I am kind of doing it like a painter a little bit. I'm trying to like find my way as I do it. And so that involves a lot of like, oh, this, this way isn't the right way. I'm going to go and start over or redraw this. Or it's a lot of, you know, reworking after the fact. We've been talking to Dan Klaus about his new graphic novel, Monica. It's out now, available at an independent bookstore near you. You can hear the entire interview. It's in our podcast. Just search your favorite podcast app, KQED Forum, Dan Klaus. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.